I have been doing Easter talks or sermons now for 30 years, which kind of seems hard to believe that I've been doing it this long now, but it's true. Back when I was in seminary, which was, you know, for me 29 years ago, uh, there was no internet to speak of at that time, right? And so what I would do leading up to Easter is I would troll our library newspaper stand. I don't know if you guys remember in libraries, they used to have um, all the newspapers on these things that look like samurai swords made of wood. Anybody remember this? Those are awesome. I used to love to go read the box scores and the sports, but I would kind of troll the, the uh, newspaper act to see, you know, what are the various papers having to say about Easter? I would also go to the grocery store, and as I was going through the checkout line, I would kind of look at the magazines, and I would see, you know, what they had to say about the holiday of Easter, whether or not it was being discussed in the broader culture at all. Now, interestingly, uh, about 25 years ago, um, or again, 30 years ago, during Easter, most of these newspapers and most of these magazines leading up to Easter, they would run stories entitled things like The Search for the Real Jesus or Who Was the Historical Jesus. Most of the publications back then were actually suspicious about the reality of the resurrection. That wasn't hidden. Um, but what they usually did was they tried to affirm that, that something good came about this, uh, this holiday of Easter. They tried to affirm something um, that people of all faiths and no faith could all affirm. Things like that which doesn't destroy you makes you stronger, and principles like beauty from ashes, things like that. So these articles would be, you know, sort of have that, that as sort of the, the goals to say there's something we can learn from this person of Jesus and this, this possible resurrection that occurred. Now, again, that was, you know, 25, 30 years ago. Leading up to today, I scrolled the headlines on all the old school traditional, traditional media sites like CNN, New York Times, and Fox News, and they all covered essentially the same stories leading up to today. They covered the Trump indictment. They covered Finland joining NATO. They had some stories about immigration and climate change. Only the New York Times had any stories that were related to Easter, and they were as follows. First, most Easter basket ideas are junk, but not these. And then they had a second one, you don't actually have to boil your Easter eggs. Who knew, right? Now, there were only two articles, zero on CNN, zero on Fox News, nothing on the Atlantic. Now, this is an assumption, but judging by the silence in media, it would seem that Easter, the celebration and the remembrance of Jesus resurrection might matter less to the American culture now more than ever before. And ironically, that's at a time when there are more Orthodox Christians around the globe than ever before. The church is growing exponentially in China, India, Russia, South America, Brazil, and Africa, and the truth of the resurrection matters to each and every one of those believers. In just a moment, we're going to be looking at the gospel of Mark's account of Jesus' resurrection. There are four accounts of the resurrection, each one in each gospel, but Mark's is the most efficient. In other words, it's the shortest. And we'll see in his account today that for the disciples and for the early Christians, Jesus' resurrection made all the difference in the world. And as someone who has had cancer and as uh, someone who has lost loved ones before, I would argue that the resurrection, the story of Easter, the reality of Easter should matter for you and for me as well. Let me take a moment and uh, pray, and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the ability to gather together and eat food, Father. That's surely a theme that we see in Scripture. Father, we thank you for um, the ability to gather and to uh, sing songs of worship to you. 
Father, I thank you for the ability that we have to gather here together today, Father, and hear Scripture read. I thank you, Father, that we have the ability today to gather as a group of believers, um, not only in the hope of the resurrection, but the reality of the resurrection of your Son, Jesus. And so, Father, we pray all of these things today in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to begin today by reading this passage from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, mother, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll away from the entrance of the tomb? Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. doesn't tell us what they were alarmed about, but you could imagine. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So what should we see here in Mark's account of Jesus' resurrection? The first point I want to make today is what we should see here is the surprise of the resurrection. It was shocking. It's very common for 21st century people like us to discount the reality of the resurrection based upon the assumption that ancient peoples were more likely to believe in supernatural events. To some degree, that's a fair challenge. By definition, religious people do believe in a transcendent reality as well as an imminent one. In other words, religious people believe in a reality which cannot be seen or touched or measured, but is nonetheless very real, while secular people, by definition, believe only in the physical world, the world that can be seen, can be heard, can be touched. That does not mean, however, that ancient people would have been predisposed to believing in a bodily resurrection. The Sadducees, that was one of the main religious groups during Jesus' time, um, by definition, according to their own theological standards, did not believe in a physical resurrection at all. So that was one group of people who weren't predisposed to believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees, another large religious group at that time, believed in a physical resurrection, but not until the very end of time. So you can take them off the list. Many of the Greeks and the Romans at that time were what, were what we would call Gnostics or proto-Gnostics. They believed, not unlike Plato 350 years before, that the physical world was bad, it was evil, it was the source of all of our problems, and part of the goal was to escape it. And instead that the spiritual world, in Plato's language, the, the world of the universals, that was good. And therefore, to the Greeks and the Romans, a physical resurrection would not have been something that they would have been expecting, right? That would have gone against their belief system. So the point I'm making here is the broader culture in Jesus' time would not have been predisposed to believing in a supernatural uh, resurrection of Jesus from the dead. They wouldn't have been expecting that any more than we would have. It's clear from this account that Jesus' followers didn't expect the resurrection either. That stands out very clearly in each of the passages we read about the resurrection. The women who went to the tomb that morning weren't going there with the anticipation of seeing Jesus alive. That was not why they were there. They were going there expecting to find his lifeless body and to anoint it with spices. 
Their biggest concern as they made their way to the tomb was who was going to roll away the stone for them so they could have access to Jesus' corpse. That's why they were there that morning. And did you notice who else wasn't at the tomb on the third day? The disciples are conspicuously absent. Both Mark 8 and in Mark 10, we hear Jesus telling the disciples that he would die and rise again on the third day, but even though he had told them that, they weren't there on that morning. It's almost as if Mark is intentionally drawing our attention to their absence. If the disciples had been predisposed to believing in a physical resurrection, you'd think that they at least would have gathered around the tomb at sunrise to see if Jesus was really going to rise from the dead after all, like he said he would, but they weren't there. Several other surprising elements about the resurrection. This account doesn't seem like a myth or some story that the disciples would have concocted. It doesn't make the disciples look particularly good. In fact, it makes them look pretty bad. If you were going to make a story up, surely you'd make it seem smoother. Surely you'd make it more believable. You might paint yourself in a better light. The fact that the primary witnesses of Jesus' resurrection were women also would have discounted the story in both Jewish and Roman cultures at the time. In fact, there's a second century Roman philosopher named Celsus who wrote to defend paganism, the Roman national religion, and to disprove Christianity. And he made this, the fact that Jesus appeared primarily to women, he made that one of his primary arguments against the Christian faith. There are all sorts of things about it that are surprising. Also, during the first century, there had been literally dozens of messianic figures, but they all fizzled out as soon as the leader died. Their followers went back home. Their followers went back to their normal lives. They realized it was over, but not the followers of Jesus. Jesus' followers instead went out into the world proclaiming a risen Lord whom their eyes had seen and their hands had touched. They carried this message throughout the known world despite intense persecution and almost certain death. Christianity didn't fizzle out after Jesus died. Instead, it exploded, becoming the dominant world, the dominant religion in the Roman world 200 years later, and it all hinged upon a risen Savior, not a corpse, not a dead body. It all hinged upon a resurrection that surprised everyone. Clearly, the resurrection was just as unbelievable to Mary Magdalene, to Mary the mother of James, and to Salome is, as it is for you and me today. It was just as unexpected for the disciples, for the Sadducees, for the Pharisees, for the Greeks, and for the Romans. They were all surprised. No one seemed to be anticipating the resurrection at all. They were all shocked. They were all surprised. And so my challenge to us this morning is to allow ourselves to join with the women at the tomb and with the disciples and to be surprised all over again by the reality, the truth of the resurrection. Let yourself be shocked. Let yourself be surprised. Let yourself be amazed. I would ask you to allow yourself to be moved by the possibility that Jesus rose from the dead, that he conquered death for you and he conquered death for me. Listen to the words of C.S. Lewis from his book, Miracles. The New Testament writers, again, that's uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, etc., etc. The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. 
He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. So, today we've looked briefly at the surprise of the resurrection. Let's now look for a moment at the heart of the resurrection. Verse 7 says this, But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, there are a number of theological truths at the heart of the resurrection. Um, Kristen may mention some today. Jeff mentioned some. David mentioned some of them. Um, One of the things we know is that Jesus lived, died, and rose again to conquer death. That's been one of the primary themes we've talked about today. We just read a quote from C.S. Lewis where he talked about that. But another theological truth there is that Jesus lived, died, and rose again in order to satisfy the requirements of the law. Another theological point that flows out of the resurrection is he did all those things to pay the penalty for our sin. But the question that I would have for you this morning is, what drove Jesus to do all of those things in his death and resurrection? What was God's end goal in the resurrection, right? Was it simply to conquer death? Was it simply to pay the the penalty of the law? Was it all of those things, or was it something more? I would argue that we see in this passage is that the goal of the resurrection was ultimately to restore our relationship with him and with his Father. So it was a restoration of relationship. That was what Jesus was doing on the cross and in his resurrection. What stands out to me in this narrative, perhaps more than anything else, are the words, and Peter. And Peter. Most of us are probably familiar with this part of the story. After Jesus was arrested, Peter followed at a distance, and then he snuck into the courtyard of the high priest where Jesus had been taken. Three times, people recognized Peter in the firelight, and three times, Peter denied knowing Jesus. The last time Peter denies Jesus, we read this, and after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he, that is Peter, began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. So in a desperate attempt at self-protection or self-salvation, in an attempt to distance himself from Jesus, Peter called down curses upon himself. Now, being the little boy that grew up in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, in the shadow of Bob Jones University, where even the Catholic churches are Baptist, what I thought this meant was that Peter cussed, right? So I thought Peter said a cuss word, and I was like, ooh, that's bad. That is not, however, what this means at all. What Peter was doing here was he was making a solemn vow. He was essentially saying, may God curse me if I'm lying, That's a far more serious thing than saying a few bad words. The literary flow here is pretty interesting as well. Peter is present in almost every narrative and every chapter of the book of Mark, except for chapter 15, immediately following his denial of Jesus. We don't hear his name mentioned again until the angel uses it here in chapter 16. Go tell his disciples and Peter and Peter. Now, it's hard to know what would have been going on in Peter's heart after he denied Jesus, we can imagine. We might imagine that he felt a crushing shame. If you remember, he had promised to be faithful to Jesus. Even if everyone else was unfaithful, he said, I will remain faithful to you, right? I'm not going to fail you. Not only did Peter fail, however, Peter's failure was the biggest of all. Jesus knew about it 
the other disciples knew about it. He probably felt crushing shame. I would assume that Peter also felt crushing guilt. If I were in Peter's shoes, I'm sure that I would think there is no way that Jesus could or would ever forgive me. Just imagine if the angels had said this instead, the angel had said this instead, go tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. What if that had been what the angel had said? Peter may very well have said, well, y'all go on without me. (laughs) Y'all go ahead. There's no way that Jesus would want to see me after what I did. But that is not what the angel said. The angel said, go tell his disciples and Peter. Some of you in this room this morning desperately need to hear this. Like Peter, you are overwhelmed with guilt and with shame. You may have done something that's so big that to you it seems unforgivable, but I doubt that it was any bigger or more personal than Peter's denial of his Lord and Savior and his friend, Jesus. I would invite you today to hear God's voice offering you forgiveness. I would invite you today to hear God's voice calling you back into a relationship with him. That was the point of the resurrection, is that God desires to have a relationship with you. Maybe you're a little bit different than Peter, and so maybe your sinful behavior wasn't so big, but maybe it was, and maybe it continues to be so frequent and so intentional that the sheer volume of your failure, the sheer volume of your sin, just feels like it's too much for God to forgive. But remember, Peter called down a curse upon himself. Jesus, however, died and rose again so that all curses might be swallowed up in the forgiveness of God. That wasn't just true for Peter, it's true for you and for me as well. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Make sure he's there too. So this Easter, we see the surprise of the resurrection. We see the heart of the resurrection. But finally, we see the mission of the resurrection. Look at verses 6 and 7. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, some of you in this room have studied or been exposed to the world's greatest religious works of art. Some of you have been to the Louvre in Paris. Others of you have been to the Uffizi Gallery in Florence, Italy. Maybe some of you have visited the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And if you go to the sections that display religious art, what you'll see there is you'll see lots of pictures of Mary holding the baby Jesus, and usually, you know, Jesus has a little glowing sort of golden orb around his head. You'll see lots of paintings of Jesus in agony on the cross, but strangely absent in each of those museums are the paintings of the resurrection. It's not so much that they aren't there at all, it's that they're so few. And yet, the resurrection was the very centerpiece of the disciples' message. In his book entitled Miracles, we read a quote from it a moment ago, C.S. Lewis wrote this, to preach Christianity meant to the apostles primarily to preach the resurrection. The resurrection is the central theme in every Christian sermon reported in the Acts. The resurrection and its consequences were the gospel or good news which the Christians brought. The resurrection then, if that's true, is actually a call to action. The resurrection is actually a call 
to mission. The angel's message to the women at the tomb that morning had three parts. Don't be afraid, go and tell. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus had a mission for the disciples as well. In Matthew 28, we read the following, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Their mission was go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. Finally, at the end of John's gospel, the resurrected Jesus' message or mission to Peter was, feed my lambs and follow me. Feed my lambs and follow me. This Easter morning, my question is, what will your mission be? What might the resurrected Jesus be telling you? What might he be calling you to? The resurrection is a call to mission. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Father, for the the reality of the resurrection and that even as the passage from 1 Corinthians 15 made the point of saying this morning, Father, it matters, makes all the difference in the world. Father, if it's true that your son Jesus rose from the dead, then we too will rise again from the dead. It's true that sin has been conquered, death has been conquered, the penalty of, uh, of the law has been satisfied, Father. It means that, uh, that you love us, that you desire to be in a relationship with us. And so, Father, I pray that this morning the reality and the truth, um, the surprise, the heart of the resurrection would engage not only our minds but also our hearts and that it might work itself out through our lives, Father, and that we might actually also be engaged in this mission of the resurrection as well, Father, as you call uh, all men into a relationship with you and with your son, Jesus. We pray all these things in his name.